Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This program is made possible because of Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, the Griffin Foundation, and the Hereditary Disease Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have a very special show. Um, if you don't know Erica Belowski with HD Reach, um, she and I have been working on a webinar series um, that you can find on the HD Reach website. And today our show is going to be a recording of that webinar, one of the webinars, webinars um, with Chief of Police Joe Thurman, um, who is located here in North Carolina. Erica and I had the opportunity to attend the Chief of Police Conference in Cherokee um, this year, and we met Joe. And he has been just amazing in helping us with understanding law enforcement and giving ideas on how law enforcement can help um, the HD community and we can help with law enforcement understanding. So um, I felt it was really important for everybody to hear this episode, this webinar. And so that is what our show is going to be today. So I hope that you enjoy it. If you'd like to see the other webinars that we have done, please visit the HD HD Reach website. Sorry, and that is hdreach.org. If you go under resources, um, you can find it under there. Uh, We have really great things on there and there's a lot more to come. So hope you enjoy this one and until next time guys, take care. Hey everyone, my name is Erica Bolofsky. I'm the Community Outreach Specialist with HD Reach, and I'm here with my co-host Lauren Holder, and we are so excited for this video. Um, it is part of our Rare Topics for a Rare Disease, our monthly webinar discussions, and today we're doing um, Behind the Badge, so we're talking about HD, we're talking about police law enforcement, um, and we are fortunate to have um, Chief Joe Amos from Middlesex County Department uh, here in North Carolina, and psychiatrist Dr. Mary Edmondson with us today, so that we can kind of talk about the relationship Huntington's disease and safety and crisis and police intervention and, and actions. So, I wanted to start off with Joe, um, if you can, a little bit. T- what would you like? What is the first thing that you would want families to know about Huntington's disease and law enforcement? What would you? What's kind of what would you want to tell them? Well, I would think that one of the most important things for Huntington's disease and the family interacting with law enforcement is to communicate with law enforcement um, what Huntington's disease is, how it may affect them or their family member, 
most law enforcement officers are not going to have an idea what it is. They're not going to know what they're looking at. Um, they're not going to know what they're faced with. So communicating that clearly with them to help them understand what's going on is going to completely change how a situation is viewed by a police officer. Okay. So, so early intervention as much as possible. Um, would you recommend kind of, I mean, even if, you know, somebody just has a loved one who has HD um, and may enjoy walking around their area. Do you kind of recommend like building a relationship with the police department that's in their area or? If that's possible, if you have an area where you can do that, larger cities, of course, that's a little more difficult. Um, some things you can do as far as your home is contact the communication center in your county and have your house uh, put in with a note that someone living there has Huntington's disease. So if an officer is dispatched there, they'll at least get a heads up from the 911 center uh, to at least get them in the mindset that that could be something they're dealing with instead of a routine call. Um, as far as you know, being out, being out in the public, um, something as simple as a medical alert bracelet would probably go a long way. Uh, officers are trained to look for those for mostly diabetics, but it would work in any situation. So that would be something to help the officer identify maybe what's going on. Okay. Now, what if someone was like, I mean, if somebody had like a medical alert bracelet, like on their shoe, like, is it some, like, even if there, if there's kind of a chaotic scene happening, is that, would you say part of training for a police officer to just assess the entire body to try to... If it's something that's on their shoe, honestly, uh, an officer is going to miss that uh, okay. for a number of reasons. It's not one of the places we typically look for a medical alert. Mm -hmm. um, number two, if you've got uh, anyone that's familiar with running and sports, they tend to just have a tag on their shoe that just has their name and their address and their phone number. So they may just think it's something for athletic purposes. Uh, they're not going to look at it as far as something medical, at least not right off the bat at a chaotic scene. Uh, we're generally looking at hands, waistbands, anywhere where a weapon could be. So to have it on your wrist, like a normal medical alert bracelet or like a necklace, something we would readily identify, that would be a lot better than than having it somewhere on like a shoe or somewhere a little less conspicuous. Let me, can I ask a question really quick? This is not on here, but one of the, um, so for those who don't know, um, Joe came to our um, education day in North Carolina and he gave a great talk um, and we met Joe because um, we were at the chief of police conference in North Carolina and um, his wife um, and I ran into each other and, and just built this relationship and thankfully Joe and his wife have been amazing when it comes to helping us with this law enforcement stuff here in North Carolina. Um, but one of the things that um, we found out at the chief of police conference was that the Department of Transportation for another disease group put something on a driver's license. Is that something that you feel would be beneficial or is it too late like for that because it's already in a wallet for it to matter? Like if there was something that states medical condition on the driver's license or something like that. Generally, the driver's license, we're going to look at that after the fact. Um, you know, it's kind of an afterthought or, or maybe even when we're already booking someone. The, the best bet for me would be to try to lobby them to put something into what we call CJ leads. Um, when we run a license plate 
the license plate shows us the owner of the vehicle. And with the owner of the vehicle, it shows us any information on them, like whether or not they have a drug arrest, a caution to law enforcement, if they have warrants, uh, if they're on probation, if they have a concealed weapon permit, all that information comes up automatically for us in our car. Before we even get out of the car, once we stop someone, we know all this information. If they could get the, I believe the state treasurer actually runs the CJ Leeds program. If they could be lobbied to add in something like that with a caution, um, that would probably help a whole lot more than having it printed on a driver's license. Now, I know you mentioned like you were looking for hands and different things like that. Because um, I know sometimes with 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 the, the community, there's some sensitivities um, to things that are restrictive. I guess uh, wearing a, a t-shirt or, I mean, even like a belt or a, uh, anything that, that reveals anything like of Huntington's disease, like, would that be kind of like a, a pause to kind really of take cool, yeah. uh, t-shirts that say, I'm not drunk. I have it. <laughs> so, you know, you hate to have to say, well, you got to go through life wearing a shirt that identifies who you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, we, we don't have people running mm-hmm. around and I'm, I'm not drunk. I'm diabetic shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think the communication of it is key, you know, in, in, both the videos we're going to discuss later, I, I watched both of them and, and saw some, saw where it kind of went downhill in both of them. Um, and I think a lot of stuff could be solved simply by saying, hey, uh, you know, as soon as the officer walks up to you, hey, just to let you know, I have I have Huntington's disease. And, you know, the officer is probably going to say, well, I've never heard of that. What's that? Um, and then the conversation can go from there. It educates the officer. Uh, it puts them more at ease maybe as to what's going on than just what they think they're saying. But I really just think it comes down to verbalization uh, and being clear and, and concise with what's going on. I know it was, Lauren was talking about our education day. There's another thing that I thought was very fascinating and um, uh, about even just seatbelts. Um, you know, it's like these little things that we've learned from Joe that, you know, depending on the state, um, you can get a, a, a something from your doctor saying that you have a sensitivity of something where you're not wearing your seatbelt. And there's also websites where you can get seatbelt identification for like medical information. Um, I believe you mentioned that it was also kind of recommended um, to keep your HD, like your wallet or your HD card in your visor. Is that correct? Where that's just kind of a non-threatening way yeah, if you, if you right. had a card or there was a card during that inf- educational seminar that we looked at that had information on there about uh like your name your provider that you had huntington's disease and what some of these symptoms might be something like that over the visor that you can hand to the officer as soon as they walk up um that's perfect the visor is a non-threatening area for you to be reaching for we're not really going to think much of it we're going to think you're probably reaching for your registration um, so that's a perfect place to keep something, uh, to keep something in there laminated, uh, to hand to an officer. The I've seen, uh, I haven't seen them in use in public, but I've seen pictures of the seatbelt that you're talking about that has the medical alert information across it. They're, they're pretty conspicuous. You would notice it. Um, as far as the not wearing a seatbelt, yes, a doctor, your primary doctor can uh, write you a letter stating that there's a medical reason for you not to wear your seatbelt. And then in North Carolina, you wouldn't have to wear it. You're still going to get stopped. 
uh, and then you just hand them the doctor's note that explains why you're not wearing a seatbelt, and then the statute says that you're you're fine. Yeah, but that's even good to know because for those who are very symptomatic and it's very restrictive to to wear the seatbelt and can cause a lot of issues, like even knowing it doesn't matter about being stopped, but even knowing that we can have that in North Carolina is great. Um, cause I didn't, I, I would have totally done that for dad. So that's amazing that we have that. I'm curious how, um, how do you know that? So even if somebody would hand you a card that they have Huntington's disease, how would you know, how would you assess their capability of driving properly? Um, like one of the videos showed, um, a young man who didn't know he had Huntington's disease and um, looking at him, he, I mean, he totally looks intoxicated, but from the point of view of, of a physician, there's um, a thought process that goes into uh, when you suggest to a person or a family that um, it's time to use alternative transportation and not to drive any longer. So how would you as a police officer know how to figure that out? Just because somebody had Huntington's disease doesn't mean they're safe behind the wheel. So I'm sure that that's a very touchy thing for me to, to talk about. <laughs> like we, but it's, we, it's a real struggle for families. We do have a form that we can fill out to have someone reevaluated for their driving. There's a criteria. Um, they could have been in a number of accidents or there are certain violations that we can catch them for and send it in. Um, most law enforcement uses that very sparingly uh, because a lot of times, you know, we're, we're looking at an elderly driver and we don't want to take away their, their only freedom to go get groceries and do things like that. So we use it very cautiously. But even when we send it in, uh, what that triggers is a two-pronged test, a, uh, a medical examination from a certified doctor, and an evaluation from the Department of Motor Vehicles. Mm -hmm. So, it, and it may be, you know, you go to your doctor, the doctor says, you know, you're, you're good or you're not good. Then the DMV brings you in for basically the road test that you would have taken to get your driver's license um, and to, to evaluate how you're driving. And then you either pass it or you don't. Now, if you don't, then yes, they they take your driver's license. Okay. So if not, then you've been checked off. You can continue to drive. Yeah. So that's very similar. So you send that to the medical division of the Department of Motor Vehicles. And I can send one as a physician and you guys can send one as police officers. Correct. It's pretty it's pretty much the same, same request form that you would send in as a physician saying that someone needs to be reevaluated. It's just with us, when we send it in, you know, as a physician, you've already done the medical evaluation, so they do the driving evaluation. When we send it in, they make them go get the medical, and then they do the driving. So right. the medical component is still there. It's just we're not the ones administering that. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is also the the last thing that we try to do. Like Yeah, we, we don't like to do it unless we absolutely yeah. have to. Yeah. We're going to watch a video here in a second um that is pretty it's pretty difficult to watch um it, it happened in 2014 um it's still very raw and real i think within the community um but uh, we're gonna we're gonna kind of see multiple police officers act on one individual um and we're gonna 
talk about how we all feel and first impressions, like what, what everyone feels about that video. Um, so, but if, I guess, Joe, if somebody was symptomatic and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm sick. I, I, even if they said they have HD, if there's like, are they able to request for a supervisor? Are people onlookers that see a, a, a viewer or a situation that they feel uncomfortable with? Like, would that be like a CIT trained officer or a supervisor? Like, is that something that so, would help? You could request a CIT officer or supervisor, but it is just a request. Mm -hmm. um, there's no law, there's no right to have these people come out. Um, and depending on when in the situation it is, they, they may or may not even be able to make that request. And depending on where you are, uh, you know, here in Nash County, we've got several really small agencies that they may only have one officer working. And so there is no, so there is nobody to call. It's them. They're it. Yeah. Um, it never hurts to, if you were to say, Hey, you know, I have Huntington's disease. Do you have a CIT trained officer or a supervisor that could come out and, and assist with this? They'd probably call one. I mean, most officers are going to call somebody if they have that person available. So one question, Joe. So if somebody did ask for a CIT trained officer, which by definition requires some unique education on the part of that person who's requesting it, right? Would that person be more likely to be taken to the emergency department as opposed to jail? That would depend largely on the type of call, uh, what they're what they're dealing with. Most of the time, we would just have a CIT officer come to the location where they are uh, because there may not be a need to take them to jail or to the ER. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and we can have a CIT officer kind of help evaluate where we're going to go. Now, you know, in the video that we watched, there's, you know, a few things that could have been done differently and, and would normally be done differently for DWI arrest that probably would have solved most of that problem. Um, but in that situation, too, if they requested it, a CIT could actually just come to the scene and, and help figure it out. Or in the case of a, uh, a DWI like that, we would also maybe send a DRE and they do a medical evaluation on people mm -hmm. and they would catch the fact that they're not actually impaired, that they have something else going on. Mm -hmm. There's also, at least in, in our county, in Forsyth County um, and in Stokes County, there's a mobile crisis unit so that people don't necessarily have to go to the ER. Um, so if like we've requested CIT before and um, they'll say, okay, well, would you like the mobile crisis unit to come out and help you? Which is really nice because then you've got this whole mobile unit that comes out um, and helps to evaluate and de-escalate the situation. But I don't know if that happens in every county. It does, actually. Um, it can take as much as two to four hours for a mobile crisis unit to get to a location, which may not, may not solve a particular problem of somebody being you yeah. know, being pulled over to the side of the road. And so my, the reason I asked that question is if there's not a supervisor or a CIT trained officer available, but somebody says they state they have this illness, would you, Joe, be more likely to take them to the ER 
or to jail. But I guess what you're saying, just so that I'm sure I understand, is it's going to depend. It's going to depend upon the nature of the behavior or the nature of the presentation of that individual. Sure. Like, say I pulled you over for uh, speeding. And I get up to the car and you're exhibiting some signs of impairment, but you tell me, hey, I have Huntington's disease. Well, you're, you were driving down the road other than speeding just fine. You know, you have a disease. I, I don't really have a need to take you anywhere. As long as your license mm -hmm. is still valid, you, you don't really need to go to the ER. You don't need to go to jail. Um, we're going to handle the traffic stop and I'm going to let you go unless there's some other issue where I would need to detain you. Um, Otherwise, you're not going to be detained. You're just going to continue on about your business as you were before the law enforcement contact. That's really important for people to know. Is it just because a law enforcement officer pulls you over? It doesn't mean that the chances are going to be pretty great that they're going to let you go. Right. Um, would you recommend, like, I mean, so I, I would assume, like, if somebody is saying that they have HD or maybe they, they don't like the, the one of the videos that we're looking, they don't, they're not aware. Um, and you um, offer to do a, uh, a blow test, a blood alcohol test. Um, I mean, is that recommended for somebody to do to kind of get them on their way if they ha really have not had any alcohol in their system or is it just? <laughs> no, um, so the blood alcohol test in order to to draw blood, we have to arrest you and then draw blood. And then you're going to be criminally charged with DWI until the state lab gives us a result back in whenever the state lab gets around to it. Um, now we have portable breath tests we can use on the side of the road and watching the video of that traffic stop, that would have been a good one to use the, the PVT on. Um, and then we can determine if there, if there is alcohol. There's other tests we do too, like the HGN, the horizontal gaze and the stagmus test, um, you know, that may or may not be affected by Huntington's disease, but uh, a lack of alcohol, uh, no positive clues on HGN and then a clean uh, breath test, we're, we're probably just gonna cut, you know, figure out whether well, there's something else. And if you tell us, you know, I've, you've got something going on or in that case, it would trigger a response for a DRE to determine what drug they're on, because it's obviously not alcohol. Mm -hmm. And the DRE would do a medical evaluation and probably figure out, hey, there's something else going on. Uh, through the history of the DRE program in North Carolina, they've actually diagnosed people with brain tumors that they didn't even know they had mm -hmm. uh, just through the intake and the medical evaluation. So I, I feel pretty confident if someone had HD and didn't know it, but they were that far advanced with the symptoms, uh, we would catch it before thinking it was a DWI. Now, the DRE program, is that just within North Carolina or is that? No, that's national. That's, that's a national, national standard. Um, the drug recognition expert, they're all over the country. Um, so that's nationally. That's very reassuring, I think, to people. Because, you know, I could be driving down, anybody can be driving down the road and get pulled by a you know, law enforcement for some, re, you know, a, a failed light or, you know, you didn't stop at a stop sign. I mean, there are many reasons that you could be um, pulled over and that a law enforcement officer has these tools by which they make 
judgments that don't have anything necessarily to do with um, whether they like you or not, right? Or whether or not you're rude to someone or, or whatever, that you have these standards that you apply to situations when you when you pull a person over or you're in a public place and you have to encounter um, a person who appears impaired, that there's there's this sort of standard of evaluation that you guys use. Yeah, even the, well, what's called the standardized field sobriety, the SFSTs, that is a national standard that you have to go and be certified for. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to go through and take refreshers every two years to maintain your certification in SFSTs. Mm -hmm. So from everything you're doing, from, you know, the FSSTs, the DRE program, um, to be a state certified chemical analyst to run the tests, there's a lot of training that goes into it. And so it's, it's not just, oh, well, I think you're drunk. Come on, hop in the car. And, you know, then I'm going to test you. There's a lot more other people that have to be involved and have the certifications to get to that point. Yeah. Has that been like a recent program or has that been like, do you know how long that's actually been in place? Uh, no, that's not recent. Uh, both all of those programs have, have been around for a long time. Um, the chemical analyst program has changed a lot over the years, but, uh, but it's been in place. DRE has been in place, I think since the seventies, um, and SFSTs probably about the same late seventies. I think let's go ahead and watch the video. And then, um, I definitely have some more questions for afterwards, but I definitely would love to see, um, the reaction to the videos, uh, cause it will be a good example for what we're discussing. I called 911 for this man. Remember, these your children? No, those are not my children. Okay, how are you involved with this guy? I just was driving by. Okay. This is insane. You're just a bystander? <laughs> I'm not a standard of anything. Go away. Leave me alone. I'm not doing anything wrong either, and I'm on private property. Register to a Bostonian subject to clear. My parents live right up a block away. I was on my way to my mom's house because my dad passed away on Wednesday. Okay. And I cannot believe you were doing this to him. You saw the officers scuffling with the guy and you decided to stop. I saw him pinned to the ground screaming and gurgling at the mouth because he's bleeding at the head and you will not handcuff him and let him up. 
He is choking on his own blood. I could hear it from my car. Okay, but these aren't your kids and you don't know. No, I don't, but this is wrong. If you want to continue filming, that's okay. I know. If you continue to be loud and boisterous, I will arrest you for obstructing, okay? Just leave me alone. Okay. Uh, leave us please. Let us do our job. It's not a problem. I'm way over here and I called an ambulance for him. I'm completely across the road and he's choking with blood and they're asking him to stop spitting. Eight minutes, no ambulance. Uh, I guess this, this cop must be an EMT. Ha. in the car appears to be safe it's just as devastating to me to watch this as it was in 2014 um because um i remember when it happened and i remember calling the department and asking to educate them about hd and them refusing um like it's so devastating to watch this because this doesn't show the whole story. Obviously, um, there's a lot more to it. But the, where they're asking about the kids, are these your kids? They're his kids. Um, and he was taking them to the park. And 911 received two different phone calls um, saying that they didn't feel that it was an emergency, but they were concerned because the guy seemed like he was having a rough time. Um being able to walk to the park and take care of his kids. They didn't know if he was on something, but it just looked like he was having a rough time. And obviously this video doesn't show that. This shows that after that call, because nobody knew that he had HD, um, but it, just watching it and just realizing like, this, this is the reality of what people have dealt with. Um, and it hurts even watching now. It's very difficult to watch because, I mean, it's absolutely clear to me that he has Korea. I mean, it's there's it's absolutely clear. You could see his abdominal wall contracting. You could see his hands doing the typical involuntary movement that people have. You could see it in his legs. Um, and, you know, you don't expect other people to necessarily understand what that means and you know the phone call is probably made out of concern as opposed to fear for themselves or other people um they were just concerned uh and i think this is like a spectrum of the kind of reactions that people have when they're in public i mean some people are in a restaurant and they just get their plate and move to another table so that there's more distance so it, it's not quite as intrusive or painful as this particular experience, but it, um, it like I said, there's a spectrum. This is the worst. This is the worst display of that that I've 
I've seen. Um, but I, I think it's important to know that, that this is the kind of stuff that even if people watch this video, makes them afraid to go outside of their home. And that's the worst thing that can happen to somebody right. with Newtons. That so so the two things here that are worst, one is are really bad about this. One is that um, it frightens onlookers and people who have watched this video that this could happen to them, so they, they stay home. The other is that people with Huntington's disease who have been restrained have literally fractured an extremity during the process of restraint. Because what happens when you don't have any control over your muscles and they keep contracting um, against a, a, a restraining force, they break the bone. So um, I bet this is your Monday morning nightmare right here. Well, so it's, we're always careful when we, you know, we talk about Monday morning quarterbacking because my experiences are different than their experiences. I've taken jujitsu most of my life. I'm a defense. I used to be a defensive tactics instructor. I don't teach it anymore. Um, my master's is in behavioral science and psychology. So it's a little different viewpoint for me than just a, a regular officer. So I looked at their department. Um, looks like they're a town of about 2,500. Uh, they have around 14 police officers now. So they probably didn't even have that many back in 2014. Um, like most places, whether it's big or small, there's not a lot of training on this. Um, even here, you know, as, as close as we are to uh, the UNC and uh, Duke and all those hospitals, the police departments don't receive any training on Huntington's disease. And it's not actually talked about in CIT either. So there's a good chance looking at that makeup, it looked like you had um, older officers and one younger officer. Uh, they probably had no clue what they were dealing with. Uh, the, and I don't know who, of course, not seeing the beginning, I don't know who was there first. Um, if it's the younger officer and he felt challenged by the guy and he goes to make an arrest, then of course, everybody else just gets there and they're acting off what's already going on. Or was it the older officer that didn't know what was going on and he felt, challenged? you know, I, I don't know because I didn't see that first part. Um, but yeah, I mean, it comes down to officers are not educated in that stuff. They're just not. Now, as far as their tactics and stuff, I mean, I could critique that all day long. It was all horrible tactics. And um, she mentioned at one point in the video, why don't they handcuff him? I think he already was handcuffed. I think he was handcuffed through that entire video from what I could tell. Um, and it looked like they were waiting for the other department to get there uh, to put him in a car with a, a transport cage. So I guess they don't they didn't have him in their car. It's just kind of what it looked like. Um, I mean, overall, small department like that, it probably comes down to just horrible training. Uh, and it only takes that one bad call to be misinterpreted by an officer to really show off how little training you have yeah. uh, in, in an incident like that. Um, and I think that's where you get that perfect storm. You probably got an inexperienced officer with little training who got into a situation he didn't understand, which brought more officers with no training. Uh, to make the situation even worse. And, you know, unfortunately, that happens. You're always going to have smaller departments with no training budget and no no way to be educated. I also looked up to see if they were, um, like, where their closest 
HD resource centers and hospitals and stuff were. And it was a pretty good distance. I think I had to expand my search to over 100 miles to even find a hospital that would deal with anything Huntington's disease related. So they'd probably never heard of it, never seen it, didn't know what they were dealing with. And, you know, when people don't know what they're dealing with, a lot of times they just make really poor, uneducated decisions. And it goes downhill from there. How do we change that though? Like how, if, if we're dealing with a small unit like that and they're not educated and he didn't, his family member was not there yet. Um, they were not around yet. So there was nobody there to say he has HD because they wouldn't let him talk. And he was already gurgling on his own blood and stuff. So like they couldn't understand him or anything, you know, how do we avoid that? Is that where the medical bracelet comes into play? Is that, you know? I think if if the very first contact, you know, because more than likely the officer said, hey, how you doing? You know, we got a call on you. Someone said you might be drinking, you know, or whatever. We don't know because we didn't get to see that because uh, it doesn't look like they had body cameras back then either. I didn't see any on their uniform. So, you know, that would be the time to say, oh, you know, no, I'm fine. I have Huntington's disease. It affects some of my motor skills. Uh, and then the officer can start getting out of the mindset of, oh, well, they're, they're drunk. Maybe there's something else going on. Because when you get that call, like with anything, if someone puts it in your mind, you know, dispatch is telling you, hey, we've received two calls of an intoxicated male walking down the street. When they get there, they're thinking already, okay, I'm I'm going to go deal with someone who's intoxicated. And that's what's in their mind. And you've got to do something to break them out of the mindset of whatever they've been dispatched to. Um, and just that simply saying, you know, no, thanks for checking on me. I'm fine. Uh, I have Huntington's disease and it affects my motor skills. Then they may ask some follow-up questions, you know, to see what it is or, or, you know, maybe they never heard of it, but you know, that or a medical bracelet, if they saw a, a medical bracelet, they may ask, Hey, I see you got a medical bracelet. There's everything. Okay. You know what, you know, can I ask what's wrong with you? Uh, and then they tell them and you get that conversation again. That's the important thing is conversation. Now, the the other thing in an area that small with 2,500 people, and, and at the time, I'm still going to assume 14 officers, uh, even though it was probably a little, little smaller, you know, a family member going to the police station and saying, hey, you know, we moved to town or we live here or we just found this out. So just so if you know, if you see him out and about, he's not drunk, this is what it is, and just educating the officers to it. Um, that's kind of the important thing is just beginning to get officers to look at alternative ideas. Um, there's an old saying, I've heard it for years, and I'll probably screw it up, but it's, you know, when you hear hoof beats, you think horses, not zebras. Mm -hmm. And that's true. You know, we, we hear, we see something, we hear it, we're expecting what we've dealt with a thousand times. Um, and so we don't think it could be something different, but we've just got to get officers different training to put them in a mindset to be open to other possibilities. Some words, words of wisdom for a very difficult scenario and a situation that a lot of people, I guess, find themselves in to, to highlight, like the education is important. It's a talking, communicating, communicating with your local law enforcement if you can, um, and starting that, starting that relationship a little early. Um, I will say also on our site, hgreach.org, uh, we have a safety plan guide, um, and uh, safety planning is 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 so very important to know your your 
emergency contacts to know um, when a crisis or an emergency happens, what does that plan look like for you? Um, so in situations like this, where it's, it's so devastating, um, Dr. Mary, how would you like as a team at UNC, how would you, you guys support, um, this family kind of moving forward? And, um, if this was like a patient of yours within your clinic. So I think it'd have to be a several prong approach, um, approach. Um, I think the first thing that you would want to know is how badly traumatized this man is from this experience and um, acknowledge it as, as a trauma and not just as an event. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of different ways that you can um, approach trauma sort of in the acute reaction phase of that, that um, can help those, help that person to resolve that trauma and, you know, put it in the rearview mirror. Um, it's, it's, it takes time. Um, and it may be that family, family members would likewise also be traumatized just from knowing that this happened to their loved one. Um, you'd always, I, I would always assess and see if the, the, the person who, um, you know, the gentleman who had Huntington's disease, I, I would look to see if there are medication regimens that would um, improve his career, that would um, uh, address certain neuropsychiatric or cognitive findings um, so that his uh, response time might be a little bit later and a little bit less impulsive. Um, and I think the other thing that would be very important would be to make sure that the, about what's actually going on at home. Like if this kind of behavior occurs with this gentleman, is it just because he's anxious or is it that he is actually um, uh, irritable or aggressive? Because you would approach those two things very differently. Um, and if, so this is how I talk to families about irritability and like, this is an opinion, so I'll just state it as such. And that is, you know, irritability is incredibly common in Huntington's disease. And it's, um, it looks like, um, it can look like aggression. It's, it comes on incredibly fast. It can look like wide open rage. Um, it's usually not prompted by a trigger or if it's a, or a tri it, if it is, it's a very trivial one and, and the behavior is out of proportion to that. And there's very good treatment for irritability. If people don't get treatment for that, it can escalate um, to combat, combative and aggressive and violent behavior. Um, so it's, it's very hard to tease out the difference between domestic violence and Huntington's disease aggression, mostly because, well, domestic violence can occur on both ends, right? A caregiver could be um, aggressive, verbally aggressive, et cetera, to somebody who has Huntington's disease and the person simply being re responding to that as opposed to it being a, a sort of self-generated um, irritable behavior. Um, but those are the kinds of things I'd think about. I'd think about what sort of non-pharmacologic interventions are necessary and what, um, what medical interventions may be necessary 
and also to understand more clearly what this individual's baseline behavior is at home and see if there are people in the household that are, are um, really afraid for their own safety. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Because I feel like that was this, it's this, this situation can be so much more complex and can be so much more layered um, with how that individual is actually functioning at home or reacting to their loved ones or the care that they actually do need um, that they needed prior to this incident. Um, but also that an incident like this, it's traumatic and it's going to require lots of hands. It's going to require lots of support and layers of support to kind of peel back, you know, what is going on and how do we move forward? I mean, just day to day move forward. I mean, that's the, it's, it's, that's always going to be something that, that, that loved one and that person and his loved ones are going to remember. Um, but I think that's a beautiful way to go. Okay. We're going to take this family and we're going to, um, peel back the layers from the situation and support them and find what we can do individually to the individual symptoms and, um, work together on that. Yeah, I think another point is that um, you mentioned, Lauren, that there was a, a pretty strong reaction to this on the part of the Huntington's family community. And, um, you know, I think this is something to talk about in support groups, in small groups, in webinars, in, I mean, the community itself has to recover from this as well as this family has to recover. And that, you know, the gentleman with Huntington's, he needs to recover from this. But these things have backlashes into the community. And the last thing you we would want to see happen is for people to become so afraid that this happens to them that they don't reach out for help. And like you're walking down the street, you might not ask for help from a stranger, but if you go to a, a place where there are people who are familiar with Huntington's disease and they know how to treat it. And there, there are many around the country. It's like probably not next door. It's probably a couple of miles away or a couple hundred miles away. But there are people out there that, that can help a family that is seeing these things happen with a loved one and they sort of don't know what to do. Like your first stop is at a Huntington's clinic. And, I, you know, I'm um, I'm all into prevention of these kinds of events. And I think education and learning how to communicate about Huntington's is incredibly important. Incredibly important. I agree. I, I think that's a huge part of, of any of it is effective communication and knowing, you know, how to talk to others about HD um, quickly. Um, you know, you want to have a, you want to have your, what is it, 10 second elevator pitch um, ready for situations like this. So you know that they're going to get it right away. Like this is not um, drugs. This is not alcohol. This is a neurologic condition. And this is what you're looking at basically in a nutshell. Um, but just effective communication all around um, law enforcement wise, the caregiver who unfortunately didn't get there until after the fact um, you know, his children were, were literally watching this happen, um, from the other side of the road and they're little, um, you know, they were under the age of five 
So you can imagine how traumatic that is for them and, and what they're going to have to deal with. Um, but could have, that could have been avoided too, had there been better communication with law enforcement. And I think, um, communication is just a huge part and education, like you said, it's just a huge part of this. You know, there's a great pamphlet put out by um, Help for HD that is intended to be read by a law enforcement officer. And I was thinking about the idea of having it like clipped to your visor, because that that is not just I have Huntington's disease, please call X number. It's got a number of topics in there that like one of those law enforcement officers could have been reading that pamphlet and they would have known within a minute that it's actually um, the wrong thing to do with an agitated Huntington's patient. And he was agitated. I mean, who wouldn't be? Um, and, you know, the first thing to do is not restrain them. Um, the second thing is that um, I think that um, I'm going to use an example that might not seem entirely appropriate, but if you have a loved one at home with hospice, they give you a box, and inside that box is a number of medications that a hospice nurse can instruct the family to use before the, the nurse gets to the house. And I keep thinking that we need something really similar for Huntington's patients, and there are rapidly um, dissolving medications that you can stick underneath somebody's tongue. I mean, they dissolve, like, so you, you're not requiring that person to um, swallow something. It just disintegrates and gets into their, into their set system. And that would calm him, him down quite promptly if there was something like that, that a, a family member had access to ahead of time. It's a really good idea. Well, and, you know, different people feel differently about how they're going to treat, whether they're going to treat Korea or not. Um, sometimes the, uh, you know, anti-Korea medications and antipsychotics, you know, they have their own set of side effects. And for whatever reason, maybe a specific individual wouldn't be able to tolerate any of those. And these methods of communicating with everybody around them, whether it's a law enforcement person or if it's a manager in a restaurant or you know wherever it might be that you would have that you know sort of immediately available for somebody to read it's really telling is the fact that you reached out to that police department and they didn't want any training on it um they didn't want any other information other than just you know who cares um that's uh that's very telling about that agency. And, you know, I don't know much, about, I don't know anything about that area as a matter of fact, but um, generally something like that, uh, that's the responsibility from the chief down and, and he runs a pretty bad department. Uh, if, they're, if they've had an incident like that and then they're rejecting training on how they could avoid another incident like that, um, that tells me a lot about an agency and, and about their, their chief law enforcement officer for sure. From chief to chief. Yeah. We've got to do yep. it as a team, man. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, he's not in my state. So. <laughs>
Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to do this last video really quick. And then um, I know that we've we've been having a really great discussion. So it's been it's been really nice to have you guys here. Um, but this last video, I because I, this is somebody who who's like, I don't have anything wrong with me and is not aware that he even has a diagnosis that there's something wrong. Um, so, Joe, I'm looking forward to hearing your 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 perspective of, you know, officer's reaction and and you know, uh, for us to all discuss it again. Hi. Good. How are you? Good. Do you know why I stopped you? Okay. Have you had anything? Have you had anything to drink tonight? No. no I went to Denny's. Denny. It's my birthday. I went to the your birthday. Okay. I had a birthday. I have water. Okay. I had zero alcohol. Okay. I have water. I don't even have any. Do you have any physical or mental disabilities? sure that I'm understanding, so I need your help. Okay. Do you have any physical disabilities? difficult one right because <clears throat> I know me personally I look at him and I see neurologic like that's just you see the chorea you see like it stands out to me that it's a neurologic condition but I also know about HD so like it's it's hard for this one because if he was undiagnosed having an outburst and he's getting irritable and um you can't fault law enforcement when he is also saying he doesn't have anything wrong with him. Um, 
you know, and they ask multiple times, but at the same time, it's very obvious he does have something wrong. So um, it's a hard one. Yeah, his behavior, his answers, it, it really mimics uh, some type, one of the uh, amphetamine drugs. You know, he's he's jerky. He he repeats himself over and over. It's clearly not alcohol. I wouldn't have suspected alcohol. But uh, it looks like he's what we refer to as a tweaker who who's probably on some type of uh, methamphetamine. Uh, so it, it that's what he presents with if you ask all the other questions and no, I don't have any medical problems. I'm not taking anything. I don't have anything wrong with me. Then the next step in your mind as a as a traffic enforcement officer, which um, you know, I don't do a whole lot of that anymore, but uh, you're, you're thinking some type of uh, stimulant, some type of impairing substance. Well, you're actually correct about that, Joe, because the imbalance in the brains of people with Huntington's is actually a dopamine mis misbalance. And what stimulants do is they release dopamine. So the fact that those two look the same is, you know, based in the biology of Huntington's disease. And the other thing that is also a problem with this is one, this guy might have a biological unawareness of his illness. Um, and it can be, um, there's, there's a number of different conditions that are um, affect the prefrontal cortex that result in this type of very dense unawareness. Um, the best example that I've got was a gentleman who told me that he never even knew he had Korea till he looked in the mirror. He, it was that level of dense unawareness. Um, the people around him would clearly have known there was something wrong, you would think. But just because a family knows it's Huntington's disease, there is a cost benefit to um, forcing that opinion and judgment on somebody who is only going to fight with you about it because it's not actually their perception, right? And typically, um, from my point of view, I don't do much. I, I try the best I can to keep people in treatment, but if they really don't believe they have anything wrong with them, I can't force meds on them. Family can't force meds on that person. And it often comes to this kind of an experience where there is a, you know, there's evidence of um, aggression or irritability or um, what the appearance of intoxication that brings that to the forefront. That is, that it's really time to have a diagnosis. Um, but there are um, new mutations of this disease, and there are a number of fam like about 10% of people, there's not a known biologically, there's, there's not a family member that's known that, that Huntington's is in that family. So uh, people who have a brand new diagnosis, what I call first generation families, um, they don't know it's Huntington's disease and they're probably out there scrambling to find a diagnosis um, and don't have one yet. And they're going down the outpatient route, which takes forever. Um, and, you know, these things can happen under those circumstances. I think, you know, the most um, prominent case of that is, um, is Vincent Gilmer. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you know his story, Joe, but he's a, he was a primary care physician in um, Western North Carolina. 
whose dad had Huntington's disease and just really tore up his family of origin. And both kids were abused. The wife was abused. Um, he eventually developed dementia and was at Broughton Hospital. And um, uh, Dr. Gilmer was on his way home from picking him up at Broughton Hospital and um, sexually made a sexual advance to him. And um, he just, Vince just totally lost contact with reality at that point. And he ended up murdering his father. And what happened to him beyond that was there were a series of mistakes that were made that did not address the fact that he had clearly had a neurologic disease. And it's because of that unawareness and because he didn't know what was wrong with him that he presented with that um, malingering kind of presentation, you know, where somebody's behavior and affect doesn't match what they're saying. And you're like, well, you know, obviously this guy's trying to get out of this charge. And he was imprisoned for 15 years and is just, I think, just now getting out of prison. So, um, but it, it's, it's really tragic when somebody doesn't have a perception of their illness. And like I said, you, you know, it's, you sort of like that, the safety issues, if there's not safety issues, you're, you're not inclined to try and force somebody into believing they have something wrong with them. And even after this kind of, even after an encounter with law enforcement or whatever, they might still remain very densely unaware. And you have to come up with a way to get medication in them that's very creative sometimes. Well, even with the, the young guy on the video there for the traffic stop, you know, his family could have just thought he had HDAD. You know, uh, some of what he's doing presents with that as well. So they may have just thought, oh, he's just a hyper kid and, you know, fidgets a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so I could see where it would fall through the cracks. And and then, unfortunately, it gets to the point where they they arrest him and think he's intoxicated. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a situation like that is going to be very difficult where someone doesn't know they even have a problem. And then law enforcement's encountering them. And we ask directly, do you have any medical issues? And you say, well, no. Uh, then definitely we're we're thinking off in a different pattern. Yeah. And I think about, you know, and I, this is just, you know, thinking about like the fa or his family unit or if he has people who are involved in his life, um, you know, sometimes it, it, it takes, unfortunately, a situation like this where he was able to get his diagnosis to bring the pieces together. Um, as much as we don't, you know, we don't want somebody to get arrested. We won't want that to be the story. Um, sometimes they are so there's that unawareness, like you're talking about Dr. Mary, and you have that, um, that incident is what leads to a diagnosis. And yeah. that plus, plus in your team. that plus in uh, uh, the, the fact that he's very impulsive. And also that his his speech is unintelligible. And, and, and that's also part of Huntington's too. Yeah. Uh, so under real, really big stressors like this, people, their career gets worse, their speech gets worse, and their behavior gets worse. Um, yeah. 
but I can't really fault law enforcement for not knowing that, right? Like they did everything that they could possibly do, asked multiple times, you know, do you have a medical condition? And he said, no, because he wasn't aware. Like there's not much in that situation other than, you know, making sure that we as people with HD take responsibility. Like if his family knows that he's showing symptoms, like you said, they're just leaving him alone that's one side of things, right? There are others of us who are aware. And I think because we are so hyper aware sometimes, it becomes our responsibility to make sure that we fill those gaps, like wearing the bracelet or, you know, having something in the visor or something like that in those instances, um, because we can't expect law enforcement to know it all, um, you know, so. And, and to go in, into public spaces with an advocate. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that, that really makes a big difference. Yeah. The advocate knows your, the, the elevator speech, that advocate also knows, I, I remember Joe, you, you mentioned that was so important is, you know, what are the, the triggers and what are the positives? What are the hobbies of this person? What does this person really enjoy talking about? So when a police officer is coming to a scene in public, it's like, do not ask about kids. Do not ask about this, but he does like baseball. He does like basketball sports. Yeah. So there's this script that this officer can already go in going, okay, I'm not going to ask about kids if, you know, that that's just going to upset them more. I'm going to start a little conversation and kind of give them a little bit of ground to work with to build that rapport pretty quickly. Yeah, because if we've got that information, we can get them out of the cycle they're in, ground them back to the moment and, you know, hopefully get them out of the, the short-lived anger event and, uh, get them back to a, a neutral. Well, the yeah. one thing that you mentioned earlier, um, Joe, was about um, there was some kind of alert that you could get to law enforcement that was through the some division of the state government where when you pull up that, that person's um, license, not their driver's license, but their car, the, you know, their license plate on the car, you would have information about that person and if recorded that information about Huntington's disease would be there and the wonderful I, I did not know that but the wonderful thing about knowing that now is that one that's not disclosed to the person with Huntington's disease right so the family members at home who make that disclosure are not setting themselves up for retribution on the from their loved one it's it can be completely anonymous, and yet it's the it would be it'd be right at the beginning of an encounter with law enforcement. And I think empowering family members to actually do that, um, because it doesn't involve disclosure of who um, who called the police, who you know any of that. It doesn't like so it takes away that fear of retribution a bunch. So the, the two things I was talking about were the uh, flagging your address through the 911 center. Um, that way, officers responding to the address know that somebody there has Huntington's disease. And you can put notes and cautions and all sorts of stuff in that that we get in our car. You know, it comes up in our computer. Uh, the other thing was um, they, they don't have this caution on the driver's license. But what I was saying was it would be a good idea to try to lobby for our CJ Leeds program, which is also in our car, to denote that when we run something and, and put it on there as a caution for us. 
uh, so that we would know once we stopped a car, we would automatically know that the person may have Huntington's disease or would have Huntington's disease. And it would give us something to, to look at when we're doing our evaluation. Yeah. yeah, I made a note of that so that um, we can see about actually contacting them to see about having that happen, because that's such a good thing um, to have if we can make it happen. Um, so I've got notes on that now for us to work on Erica. <laughs> well, yeah. And the other thing that you might consider is, is um, partnering with the Parkinson's Foundation, because people who take anti-Parkinson's medicine, which is dopamine, basically, they can look exactly like somebody with Huntington's. Because some of those people like to run at a higher dopamine level than other people does. Michael J. Fox being the best example of it. I mean, we see Michael J. Fox, he looks like somebody with Huntington's disease. So they may be very interested in partnering with you about that. It's a great idea. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that... Well, I think any of these things that you guys work on and or the things that we've learned from this conversation, that needs to be an additional safety. That, that's part that's not part of our safety plans. So we need to include that as a, a part of the Huntington's Family Toolkit. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, this, is, this is an ongoing thing and it's gonna be something that's continued and it's not just gonna stop here or end here or just be a video that gets put up. Um, so anybody else who's watching this, you know, call us at hdreach.org. Talk, talk, go to our website, check out our socials. Like we do have safety planning. We have this video. We're, we, we work closely with Help for HD, who has an incredible police training um, program. And um, and then, of course, we've got our friend Joe. We've got our friend Joe Amos, who's here and just gives such great advice. But um, reach out to us. Reach out and let us help you learn how to navigate some of these complex situations like there it's it's it is common within the hd population to need a whole team around you and a team of multiple different kinds of professionals and family members and supports um and we're we're here to help you navigate that but thank you guys for being here this was an incredible video and um i thank you guys for for being with us Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I always enjoy uh, working with y'all and answering whatever I can to, to try to help out. Thank you, Joe. Same with us at UNC Chapel Hill. We're, we're available to everybody in the state. We have a mandate to take care of everybody. So, um, and we're a new clinic, so we have availability. And just because we've got North Carolina people here does not mean we're just North Carolina, right, everyone? Mm -hmm. So um, you call in and let us let us help you navigate to your closest center of excellence or other professionals, just like Joe, just like Dr. Mary, just like Lauren Holder here, who's just, you know, Lauren, the Lauren Holder. <laughs> um, but we're here to support you. So thank you all for being here.